Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment on this Election Tuesday Eve, what will history indicate about this year's typical voter turnout by race and ethnicity? Emory Political Science Professor Bernard Fraga joins me. So that's really the deeper issue. It's not so much who you go and try and get out the vote for on election day. It's really about what's the work you're doing in between elections. How are you talking about issues? Are you addressing the concerns of the community, even when it's not just about getting people to show up on election day? And that's where I think both parties have really fallen short in terms of reaching out to minority groups. That's coming up in just a moment. But first this, Georgia, of course, is in the spotlight as polls indicate a too-close-to-call projection between President Donald Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden. Now, former President Barack Obama is in Atlanta today for a get-out-the-vote drive through rally at Turner Field. Meanwhile, Senator Kamala Harris was in Gwinnett County yesterday. And so I am back in Georgia to thank you for all you've been doing these years and these months and these weeks and these days, look at the kind of turnout we've already seen in terms of early voting. And I just wanted to come back to remind us that we still have a ways to go. And President Donald Trump was also in Georgia this past Sunday, his fourth visit since the summer. Mr. Trump assured his crowd of supporters what his reelection would ensure. With your vote, we will continue to cut your taxes, cut regulations, support our police, support our great military, protect your Second Amendment, which is under siege, defend religious liberty, and ensure more products are proudly stamped with that beautiful phrase, made in the USA, and that's happening. Now, in 2016, Trump won Georgia by five points, and again, These multiple polls indicate Georgia, a battleground state, and simply too close to call. Meanwhile, nearly 4 million Georgias have cast ballots so far. Now, if you're planning on heading to the polls tomorrow, election officials say to double-check your polling place. Voters in Fulton and throughout Georgia can do this, of course, by visiting the My Voter page at the Georgia Secretary of State's website. More than 90 polling places have changed in Fulton County for the election, some because of the pandemic. And these changes come as the number of new infections in the state continue to rise. According to the Georgia Department of Public Health, the latest report is this. 361,982 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in the state. 31,720 have been hospitalized, and of those, we're looking at 5,961 considered ICU admissions. And at least two new deaths in Georgia were reported this past Sunday. In total, 7,981 deaths have been recorded since March. This information is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. In related news, Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms declared a state of emergency across the city on Saturday. This is days after Tropical Storm Zeta left a destructive mark in many parts of the state. The executive order mobilizes additional employees and city resources to assist in Atlanta's recovery. Over the weekend, the city reported 357 trees were down and 10,000 Georgia Power customers at the time of this broadcast were still without power. Georgia Power officials say they've restored electricity to more than 97 percent of those impacted and is working to help the rest of their customers as quickly as possible. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. 
Voter participation numbers in the 2016 presidential election revealed a lot. Here's what Pew Research concluded in May of 2017. They found that the black voter turnout rate declined for the first time in 20 years. That happened in the 2016 election. How far was that drop? How about this? 59.6% in 2016 after a record high of 66.6% in 2012. Now here's something else. As for this presidential election, Latinos will account for the largest non-white ethnic voting bloc. It's estimated to be about 32 million are eligible to vote. That's about 2 million more than the 30 million eligible black voters. And there could be a record number of Asian American voters casting ballots as well. Well, what will history indicate about this year's general election and the typical voter turnout by race? Well, joining me now to talk about all this is Bernard Fraga. He's an associate professor of political science at Emory University. And he's also the author of the book, The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. He joins me right now. Professor, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. You know, at the time of this broadcast, it's estimated just under 93 million have already voted. That's a record. What do you make of that? Well, I think, you know, you see the combination of the pandemic right, convincing people that they need to take more precautions, mail in their ballots, or show up early when the lines might be shorter than on election day. But also the campaign, especially the Biden campaign, has really been advocating for supporters to show up to the polls early and make sure that their votes are counted, barring any kind of election day hiccups or any issues with mail ballot delivery. Now let's go back a little bit. I want to go back to 2008 because that election year would come to be known as the most racially and ethnically diverse electorate in history. Now, someone would say, well, probably the main reason was the running of Barack Obama, not just as a black candidate, but at the time, a candidate, a black candidate that had a chance to win. Do you agree with that assessment? I think that's right. I think that the Obama campaign, not just Obama the candidate, but the Obama campaign worked very hard to mobilize racial ethnic minority groups, especially African-American voters. There was an understanding that Obama might be a little bit weaker with white voters than other Democratic nominees had been. Now, in the end, we didn't really see that. Obama did very well, especially among young white Democrats. However, his effort at mobilizing and engaging with the African-American community, something that he had done as a senator and when he had run for office before, really, I think, paid off in higher voter turnout for African-Americans and showed the Democratic Party a path forward that could rely more heavily on minority voters than moderate white voters, those swing voters they have been courting in the past. In fact, what we do know, according to the census, is that in 2008, I believe one in four votes were by non-whites, the big three being black, Hispanics, and Asians. So you're absolutely correct on that. But, Professor, what do we know about the ethnic breakdown in terms of non-whites and political party affiliations from 2008. We know that there was an overwhelmingly among black voters, but what do we know about Hispanics and, and Asian voters? Do we have any numbers in terms of what percentage voted for Obama? Sure. I mean, we saw around between 60 and 70 percent of Latino voters in 2008 supported President Obama. And for Asian Americans, it might have been a little bit lower. The numbers are more difficult to come by, and there's a lot of state-by-state variation. But you know, around two-thirds of Asian Americans likely supported Obama in 2008. Those numbers look relatively similar in later elections in 2012 and his re-election bid, Mm -hmm. and we expect to see something similar in 2020. Let's zone in on one particular group because we do know that black women, black women voters, that percentage increased from 2004 to 2008, but here's what we know, that among all the racial and gender groups, uh, black women led with the highest voter turnout in November back in 2008. That was a first. Well, you know, I think that it, it just demonstrates what we've all come to learn now and what we're talking about now, especially within the Democratic Party, which is that black women really are the base of the Democratic Party, the most reliable voting base in terms of partisan affiliation. This election has predicted that 90 percent, perhaps even 95 percent of black women who are voting will support Joe Biden. Similar numbers to what we saw during President Obama's election and then re-election. And we know that there's you know, a little bit of a lag among black men, both in terms of voter turnout, mm-hmm. uh, felon disenfranchisement, and other things have a lot to do with that, but also in terms of partisan support. And I think, again, it demonstrates the power if, if that is, the Democratic Party decides to empower black women, put black women at the top of the ticket or the vice presidential slot as they did this year, then black women will show up to vote and support 
those candidates and the campaigns that empower their group. Well, we got to look at before we focus on now, we got to look at in between 2008, well, specifically 2012 and, and 2020, which is obviously the 2016 election. And, Professor, we saw a decline among black voters. Do you think that they just weren't enthralled with the Democrats' final nominee and Hillary Clinton? So the 2016 election is really the kind of framing uh, and in many ways the focus of my book, The Turnout Gap. Mm-hmm. And the turnout gap that I'm talking about is the gap in the rate of voter turnout between racial ethnic minority groups and the white population. And in 2016, we saw that gap grow, expand, especially for African-Americans, where we saw dramatically lower turnout than in previous recent presidential elections and lower turnout than for the white population as well. And you know, one cause that I identify is the fact that campaigns don't always have an incentive. They don't think that they need to or that it would be helpful for them to really empower, engage with, and try and mobilize racial, I think, minority voters. So that includes African-Americans, but also Latinos and Asian-Americans. Despite their growing share of the population, campaigns feel like they're better off by catering to moderate white voters, high turnout white voters that they know will cast a ballot, just making sure they cast a ballot for their party. So are you saying the playbook is to, you know you're going to have your base, you know you're going to have your support, but you're saying that for, particularly for the Democrats and Republicans, that they're trying to, to sway that that moderate, that in the middle, that, that if you want to call them centrist, I don't want to call everybody centrist, but you want they're, they're going to focus on that group because that's the unknown, the uncertain, which it may make sense, but is that a large voting block to begin with anyway? Well, so, you know, when I look at it in terms of race and ethnicity, it's important mm-hmm. to keep in mind that despite the growth of the Latino and Asian population, non-Hispanic whites, right, mm-hmm. are still 70% of the electorate, 70%. Yeah. So if you think that a campaign strategy that's geared towards those voters is going to sway not just, you know, the people on your side or maybe the other side, but the moderate voters in there as well, even in the way we talk about issues. And we saw that this year, we're talking about things like criminal justice, Biden has emphasized he's not going to defund the police. He's not going to abolish the police, right? That's a signal to moderate white voters for sure, but talking about it in the way that white voters are talking about it in terms of their concerns, most white voters. So that's really the deeper issue. It's not so much who you go and try and get out the vote for on election day. That mm-hmm. matters as well. But it's really about what's the work you're doing in between elections. How are you talking about issues? Are you addressing the concerns of the community, even when it's not just about getting people to show up on election day? And that's where I think both parties have really fallen short in terms of reaching out to minority groups. Well, let's stay with that for a moment, because then one could argue that, that the Democrats did a terrible job or have been doing a terrible job, some would say, these past four years of trying to get their message out, as opposed to when they, everyone started, when you had you know 20-some people running to be the Democratic nominee. Did the Democrats drop the ball here these last four years? Or some would argue, and I've had this conversation before, that when Obama was elected the second time, the Democrats should have been, as we call it, started building their bench. They didn't do that. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I think that one of the criticisms of the Obama presidency in terms of infrastructure building, in terms of building the Democratic Party, was that the, you know, the campaign infrastructure kind of disappeared, both Mm -hmm. in between elections, but then after 2012, it kind of faded away, and it was up to Hillary Clinton to build a new infrastructure. Now, again, it's important to note, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by a very, very large margin. She built a successful national campaign. And in a few key states that everyone thought were going to go to the Democrats because they always had historically, she fell short by really just 100,000 votes total in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania combined. So it was a very, very close election and really just something no one could have predicted. Mm -hmm. If Hillary Clinton would have won the Electoral College in addition to the popular vote, we wouldn't be having this conversation about the failure of Democrats. But now, Looking back, we say there should have been more done. And I think it's very clear there should have been more to empower really black, Latino, and Asian American Democrats, the leaders, building that bench that you're talking about, but building a more diverse bench. Now, we saw some of that happen in 2018 in terms of who ran for office, Mm -hmm. but also in terms of who won office. Young people of color who had very progressive ideals, right, that were getting support not just from minority communities, which was the thought people had about where these candidates could be successful, but also among young whites who maybe weren't turning out to vote in the numbers necessary to secure Democrats' victory in 2016. 
So I think this is really about the future of the Democratic Party versus the past of the Democratic Party. And whether Joe Biden, again, an older candidate from, I would say, the more moderate side, at least of the, as you mentioned, 20 or more candidates who are running for office, he was seen as a more moderate or centrist approach. Can he build a bridge mm -hmm. to the next generation of Democratic leaders, right, that are going to carry the party forward and mobilize this more diverse American population. Well, and speaking of this more diverse population, coming into the segment, Professor, I, I referenced that Pew Research data where Latinos will account for the largest non-white ethnic voting bloc. But within the Latino community, if you want to dissect this by nationalities, both parties have a, a share of specific groups, either Cuban-Americans and Puerto Ricans and Hispanics, that that is kind of divvied up among the party, the two major political parties here. What, what do you, how do you assess this? Break this down for our listeners. Well, so two things. You know, first of all, when we talk about the Latino uh, voting, you know, block, it's not really a voting block, not the same way as talk about African-Americans. And even mm -hmm. within the African-American population, there's a lot of diversity. So I don't want to, you know, gloss that over. But among Latinos, we're about 60 to 70 percent vote Democratic in a given election. We have to remember, about two-thirds of the Latino population in the U.S. is Mexican origin, Mexican-American or Mexican immigrants, right? That including, includes among voters. Then the next largest group is Puerto Ricans, depending on how you count them, between 13 to 18 percent. And then Cuban-Americans, maybe four or five percent. And then the other groups are smaller shares mm -hmm. still. So it's dominated by Mexican origin people, heavily Democratic in terms of partisan affiliation. But then you have groups like Cuban-Americans who are about 50-50 nowadays, Republican and Democrat. And in Florida, that's about what you see for the Latino population, about 50-50. Because Florida is a swing state, Texas maybe now joining Florida is another state with a large Hispanic population that's a swing state, but Florida is still the focus. That's why you see both parties trying to cater to that electorate mm -hmm. in a way that's a little bit different than for African-Americans, mm -hmm. where the assumption is you're going to vote dominated by Democratic Party. If you're just tuning in, I'm Rose Scott, and this is Closer Look, and I'm in conversation with Bernard Fraga, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University, and we're talking about voter participation, but specifically those, quote, minority groups. Professor Fraga is also the author of The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. What do you make of, or what are your projections in terms of the, let's start with the black voter participation this election. What do you predict? Are we going to see those same numbers? I don't know if we'll see the same numbers that we saw in 2008 and 2012, but will the numbers you think be better than 2016? Yeah, the overall turnout rate for African Americans in 2020 will be higher than it was in 2016, perhaps even higher than it was in 2008 and 2012. But important to note, the turnout rate for whites will also be very, very high. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is turnout for everybody is going to be high this year. So when we think about the gap in turnout, right, disparities in turnout, which are really about disparities in political power, I'm very concerned about the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic, which has disproportionately impacted the black community, right, is going to lead to smaller gains in turnout than for whites who are less impacted by COVID-19. Also, the fact that campaigns both Democrats and Republicans are trying to mobilize white voters, where on the Republican side, the effort is in many ways to suppress black voter turnout. So the bottom line is we might see higher turnout rates among African-Americans compared to other previous elections. But the disparity, the gap in turnout between African-Americans and whites will still be as large, maybe even larger than it was in 2016. Even when we talk about the pandemic and, and these other specific issues here, because in the past there's always been some distinct differences in what issues drive black voters versus other ethnic groups. How would you assess then how President Trump and Joe Biden, that camp, how they have messaged non-white voters? Well, you see two different strategies at play, I think. When Donald Trump won election and was on his USA Victory Tour in December 2016, he talked about his success with different demographic groups, women voters, Hispanic voters. When he came to African-Americans, he said, you know, African-American voters, you know, they didn't come out to vote for Hillary. They didn't come out. And that was big. So thank you to the African-American community, effectively thanking black voters for not voting. Yeah. Now, I think we've seen some of that theme continue. Trump often talks about his high profile endorsements from one or two African-American celebrities at a time because then they endorse and then they go back on their endorsement. Uh, he talks about the fact, you know, that he was uh, signed a, a criminal justice reform bill 
he mentions some high profile black supporters, but in general, he is not really talking about the issues that are of concern to black voters, right? And I think that's reflected in the fact that he's not doing particularly well among black voters in the electorate. Joe Biden is winning, you know, at least 85%. Let me ask you, does he need to do, quote, well among black voters? Well, that's the big question, right? So that Mm -hmm. strategy is to peel off just a couple more percent and then have turnout be low enough, right, that it's going to make the difference in a state like Georgia. So I think you're absolutely right. It's a different strategy. For Joe Biden, the strategy is mobilize every single African-American voter you can find. So in other words, maybe I got you here. For Trump, it's not so much as I need your vote. It's don't vote for Biden because some folks will not vote for Biden. They're just going to stay home. That's what you're right. saying. And then as for mm-hmm. the Biden-Harris ticket, it's like, no, come out, vote because of X, Y, Z, whatever. That's not that's an uncommon right. strategy now um, <laughs> that we history no, has shown that's us. That's a very common one. Yeah. It's not, that's not a new strategy for Trump. I think that he's making it more explicit than Republicans have in the past. But look, you know, being here in Georgia, people know how this works, right? You can get a voter registration list, see people's race on the voter file. We know which, you know, racial ethnic groups are going to support which party. And in Georgia, right, upwards of 60% of whites are voting Republican, maybe even more than that this year. So we know that the, the electorate is very polarized on the basis of race. So race is part of campaign strategy for both sides. But the messaging and what they're going to do is very, very different. And I think that's what voters need to consider going into Election Day. Well, on the eve of yet another Election Day, what will you be watching for that may give somewhat of an indication regarding the outcome? Well, you know, I, I've done some analysis of the early vote, and it's pretty clear that the Democrats, uh, despite some gains by Republicans in the last week, across 11 or so battleground states, the Democrats are leading right in the early vote people who are likely to vote for Democrats, more likely to show up early. All the predictions are that on election day, Republicans are gonna be much more likely to turn out. So if we see high rates of turnout, long lines on election day, oddly enough, given all the rhetoric we've seen, that's probably a good sign for Republicans, right? If we don't see those long lines, if we see turnout being relatively low on election day, that might, especially in heavily Republican areas, that probably indicates Trump is gonna have a bad night then are you willing to say what voter group or groups could be the deciding factor on a Trump re-election or Biden win? That's a good question. I mean, it depends on how you look at it, but I will say it comes down to voter turnout among African-American voters, especially in the South. I think that's going to be really, really key. We need to pay attention. Uh, Turnout for Latino voters in states like Arizona and Texas. And really the partisan choices that are being made by white suburban voters and highly educated voters. Are they going to continue the trend we saw in 2018 mm-hmm. in supporting Democrats more than they did in 2016? Also here, Georgia is the only state that has both Senate seats up. Mm-hmm. Uh, might that also play a factor here in Georgia specifically in terms of turnout? What do you make of Georgia's two contests for Senate? Well, I think that, you know, in the absence of Biden doing well in the national polls, well enough to make Georgia competitive, the two Senate elections would be all we're talking about. Right. As you mentioned, Georgia is the only state with both Senate seats up this year. So it's a chance for voters to have a tremendous impact on national politics. Georgians will decide, control the Senate most likely. Now, the problem is because of the runoff rules that Georgia has, Mm -hmm. they're probably going to decide that in January when the runoff elections are held. So we're going to know who the next president will be in all likelihood. We'll know what the composition of the Senate will be aside from those two seats. And then the runoff election will garner even more national attention. So you think Georgia, you know, you think you're done with elections. I know we had a special for Georgia five mm-hmm. to the passing of John Lewis. We're going to have even more elections with the runoffs, both for the Georgia five seat and in January for the Senate seats, most likely. And what history and the, what the data show about runoffs and voter participation by ethnic group, it tends to be lower for the black voter. Would that well, probably continue if there is a runoff? for either one of those seats or both. Well, I think that you're going to see a big effort by the Democrats to turn out black voters, but I'm actually interested in their efforts to turn out younger white Democratic-leaning voters as well, because I think that's a population that really drops off. You know, there are disparities in voter turnout by racial ethnic groups, but the big differences we see in who votes by age are really worth noting, too, and especially with young people, you know, their their lives are kind of uh, being 
you know, really dramatically affected by the pandemic in terms of colleges being shut down. People are going to be home at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, even if the colleges are open now, they'll be closed in time for the runoff because of the longer winter breaks many colleges and universities are doing. So the Democrats are going to have a hard time mobilizing those younger Democratic-leaning voters that are key, along with high turnout among African-Americans, to Democrats' chances in a state like Georgia. Is it too early for you to look into your election crystal ball, Professor, and start looking at 2024 in terms of strategy? Yeah, yeah, I think we're going to see what happens this year. So 2018 was obviously a big step in Georgia, right, in terms of, you know, building and showing that Democrats could win a statewide election. But Republicans control all statewide office in Georgia. We have to remember that. Mm -hmm. And both chambers of the state legislature. If they can make inroads in the state legislature, that means they can shape the districts that are going to be drawn in 2022, right? Mm -hmm. Then we're going to see what happens in 2024, both in terms of congressional elections, obviously the presidential. Depends on who gets elected here, mm -hmm. right? But I think that we're going to see in a state like Georgia, right, a continuation of this trend more in the blue direction, coming more like North Carolina, and maybe even more like Virginia, used to be a red state, now a solidly blue state. We'll see if that plays out in 2024. And in between all of that, we will have another gubernatorial race. So who knows, right? Yeah, there's going to be a lot going on here. I think Georgia will definitely be in the national spotlight for many years to come in terms of elections. So what do you make of Georgia now being a battleground state? Well, you know, I think it's obviously as someone who, you know, just recently moved here, I have to say, um, you know, it's an amazing place to to really live in and see the election season, see candidates come here. I know President Obama is going to be here later today in the Atlanta area. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, this is a great opportunity for Georgians to have their voices heard, both in terms of state politics and national politics, and really, you know, make their impact heard as well. You know, I think the other amazing part of this is it's one of the few, Georgia is one of the few states with a very large African-American population that is viewed as a swing state. Right? more so than Florida or Michigan or Pennsylvania, right? Georgia really being decisive means that black voters are decisive and that the issues that black voters care about are decisive. But still, once you get outside of this Atlanta region, it's primarily a, a rural state here. Does that have anything? Well, we have, yeah, we have to remember that people decide elections, not land, right? Sure. So that is true that, you know, outside of the Atlanta metro, uh, you know, and except for a few other counties, a few other areas, right, it's a predominantly rural state. But the rural population in Georgia, just like in the rest of the country, is dwindling. Mm. We know that it's getting smaller. So, yes, the Atlanta metro area is going to play an outsized role in the politics of the state and as a result in the politics of the nation. But I think when we think about the suburban areas, which are becoming more diverse around Atlanta, outside the perimeter, right, those areas are really going to become the decisive battleground places. Because if Republicans start losing those white suburban voters, mm -hmm. right, and then losing the population growth in rural areas because it's declining in those places, mm -hmm. that's where we're really going to see Republicans having trouble winning statewide elections here in the future. Bernard Frager is an associate professor of political science at Emory University and author of the book, The Turnout Gap, Race, Ethnicity, and Political Inequality in a Diversifying America. Professor, good conversation on the eve of another big election. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you again for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A programming note regarding special election coverage on Tuesday. Join NPR, me, and the WAB News team starting at 7 p.m. And, of course, throughout the day, including tomorrow's edition of Closer Look. Also, if you're heading to the polls on Tuesday, WABE wants to hear about it. Let us know about your Tuesday voting experience. Were you stuck in line? Did you vote pretty quickly? Is it a memorable experience or you saw something notable? Let us know in an email. Georgia Votes 2020 at WABE.org. Again, that's Georgia Votes 2020 
at wabe.org. Now, we just heard from Professor Bernard Fraga, Associate Professor of Political Science at Emory University, on ethnic participation this election season. Now, just recently on the program, I posed this question to conservative, liberal, and progressive analysts. I asked which demographic has their respective parties struggled to engage this election season? You know, look, there's always more to be done. You know, I think um, this particular year, I've seen a lot of energy and enthusiasm for the Biden-Harris ticket with the uh, AAPI population, the Asian-American folks down here, and the Latinx population, particularly in counties, again, right, like uh, like Gwinnett and Cobb, et cetera. So I would love to see, you know, increased investments and, and sort of sharing the love back with the, these communities that are really doing the work on the ground. So there's, there's always more to be done. Like uh, Alexander said earlier, you know, we're still six days out. These are not communities and in places like the Deep South where folks take anything for granted. We know we have to fight for literally every single thing. So no one's taking anything for granted here. No one's resting on, on polls or, you know, a, a little money here, a little money there. So they've, they've just got to, to keep up the energy, keep up the investment um, and, you know, keep up the momentum down here. And then I think we are going to win. Alexander. Is there a group that you think the Dems could have done a, a better job of reaching and, and, and hitting those issues of that group? No, absolutely. I think in particular with the, the Latino community, uh, what, what we see is that if you invest in our communities early on, there's a huge return. I mean, in terms of if you start talking to the communities, uh, Latino communities, like six months or so before an election, as opposed to right as the, you know, as it's things are heating up, uh, then you'll connect with folks in a way that that's genuine, right? You're, you're hearing from them and responding to their, their needs. And the, the big payoff is when, uh, you know, your abuela goes out to vote, the entire family goes out to vote. So that's one thing that folks are, are you know, we're hearing all about this this white suburban voter the entire election season. And if we just put a little bit of that money that's been put on that demographic just to, to that, it would pay off dividends. And I think folks are really seeing that. I think uh, Bernie proved that in Nevada during the primaries. And I think folks are learning from that and of the way that they ran their campaign where the the there there wasn't like a whole oh here's the Latino department it's like no you're integrated in the main campaign mm-hmm. and I think that that's key and if folks start thinking that way it's like no 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 our struggles are intertwined don't don't put us off in another room where where you forget about us so I think that's sort of and people are clicking on it it's just you know there's the old consultant class that's still around and the old money class so it's it's a lot of tensions going on and we'll see how things settle but the, the, these next 106 days are going to be crucial. Megan, what about you, a group the Democrats could have done a much better job of trying to reach? Um, I understand um, being a part of um, the black and brown community. Minorities have been frustrated with what's been going on in America for generations. Mm-hmm. And um, like Ab- Abigail said, there's always can be room for improvement. And understanding the the type of like structure that the Democratic Party has, there's other organizations that are putting forth um, a lot of efforts to touch on um, black and brown communities and understanding the importance of really getting out the vote. And I think the Democratic Party is doing a great job, like the Young Democrats of Atlanta, to make sure that they're um, being inclusive, um, to highlight the frustrations of the voters and encouraging voters like Ebony Carter, who's writing in House District 109, who's a millennial, who's um, a woman of color. And she's speaking up for a demographic of people that are misrepresented when um, people are running to, for office. And so highlighting how we can uplift the community, we do that um, every day. And um, I'm, I'm really excited that we have this opportunity to push candidates like um, Ebony um, Carter Ford as well. You know, Donald Trump is, is such a unique candidate. And um, I've had, you know, Eric Miller, I've been on the other side of his desk, uh, you know, a lot during the last decade, just you know, talking about this issue. I think Trump, ironically, has done a good job with Hispanics. He's done a good job with African-Americans. When I say good job, I mean better than the average Republican nominee, right? Um, And in this case, better than the Democrat nominee. So, you know, uh, Joe Biden is relying on, you know, the ghost of Democrats past to to get African-American support out. but I think that if there was a group, a single group that I think um, some effort could have been made to, um, I think, you know, white women, I think uh, I heard Donald Trump in a rally recently saying, you know, suburban women love me, love me. You know, so I think it was it's a little too 
probably late to be trying to appeal to suburban women. And here in Georgia, we saw that really hit us in 2018. And, and um, um, so if anything keeps me up at night, that's the one uh, demographic group. Eric, what about you, a group that the Republicans could have had a stronger relationship with? Well, you know, just playing off of what Corey said, too, I, I, I do think that the president, uh, the accomplishments during his four years have just been tremendous. And I think a lot of it has been glossed over because of the, the pandemic, at least this past year. But when you look at the lowest unemployment, whether it was African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, women, um, you know, the, the economy was in a good place. But unfortunately, you know, politics is about the now mm -hmm. and we're dealing with this pandemic. And one area that has been a struggle for President Trump, because it's it's who he is, is empathy is just not something that, you, you know, he's really good at. And he's running against someone that is very good at demonstrating empathy. And I think that really impacts women. Mm -hmm. And so when you talk about a voter group, I would say it's 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 women, and and I know Corey and Julianne both know I am a huge proponent of getting more women involved in in Republican politics, and have been involved in a national effort called Winning for Women, um, and I just think it's uh, it's unfortunate because, as I said at the start, the the policies and the substance of what the president did has done the last four years has been really quite remarkable. But um, I think it's this empathy piece that's creating the biggest problem. Mm, empathy. Julianne, you'll get the last word. A group, a demographic that the Republicans could have had a stronger relationship with in addressing issues. Well, I think most definitely it's women. But I do want to say this. Um, if there is one thing that Republicans need to understand, it is, okay, gone are the days of the 72-hour last-ditch effort for voting. Gone are the days of just the October surprises because they don't work anymore. Um, on September 14th, the absentee ballots started uh, the mail out here in Georgia. Over 70 million Americans have already voted absentee by now. Um, on the 12th of October, early voting started in Georgia. More than half of the people in Georgia that voted in 2016 have already voted in Georgia. Mm -hmm. This is largest amount of people that have ever voted in a Georgia election. So if Republicans need to take something away from 2020, they need to take this. They need to start campaigning earlier and they need to start it a lot stronger, a lot earlier, because by the time mid-October gets here and you have your October surprises, it's kind of late for them. So they really, really need to ramp up the get out the vote efforts a lot earlier like as in July and August. That was Abigail Colazzo, Alexander Hernandez, Megan DuBose, Corey Ruth, Eric Tannenblatt, and Julianne Thompson. And a reminder, for more analysts and continued coverage, join us for tomorrow's Closer Look at our regular time, 1 p.m. And later in the evening, NPR and WAB News for live coverage. As a result, we think, will start to come in. Join me and Jim Burris. The fun starts at 7 p.m. here on WABE and 6 p.m. on ATL-PBA. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. It's Election Tuesday Eve. We know polls will open tomorrow at 7 a.m. across Georgia and at varying times around the country for, yes, a very important election. And election officials here in Georgia are hoping that things will go a lot more smoothly than they did during the primaries. Because none of us, my staff, my board, me, none of us liked the way things went in June. Pretty much. That was Fulton County Elections Director Richard Barron. And in our conversations, we've had so many with Director Barron. He has stated that finding poll workers has been difficult this year. And typically you may find a lot of older folks who will work in the polling locations. But the pandemic, well, it's been a problem. This is where a nonpartisan organization comes in. They're trying to help by recruiting veterans to serve as poll workers. Joining me now to talk more about this is retired Army Captain Dan Brzezinski, who is serving as a poll worker in Fulton County, and Chris Purdy, the project manager of the Veterans for American Ideas program at Human Rights First 
He's based right here in Atlanta. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. Captain Bershinsky, let me start with you. First of all, thank you for your service. We'll get to this new initiative in a moment, but I want you to take me back a little bit to that moment when you decided to enlist. Well, sure. So I actually grew up here in Georgia. I grew up in Peachtree City, graduated from high school in 2002. So 9-11 had just happened. Mm -hmm. And I chose to go to college at the military academy at West Point. So I both wanted to go to college and serve as an army officer afterwards. And so I did that through West Point. I graduated from West Point in 2007 and then was on active duty uh, for a few years after that. You served in Afghanistan, correct? Correct. Yeah, I deployed to Afghanistan once in 2009. And Captain, let me ask you this. For many veterans, when you all return, what's the process like in terms of trying to transition back to, what I guess, what we would call civilian life? Can you take me through that, what that process has been like for you personally? Yeah, I can definitely tell you about my process. I'll, I'll start by saying the process varies a little bit. It depends on you know, your age, your level of education, your rank that you're leaving the military with, um, your prior roles. Obviously, if you're leaving, you know, as a young enlisted man who serves, you know, a four-year contract, that's going to look very different from a lieutenant colonel who is retiring after 20 plus years of service, of course. In my case, uh, as I mentioned before, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, and unfortunately, I was wounded pretty quickly thereafter. I stepped on an IED and lost both my legs above my knees. So my journey was pretty unique, and that consisted of getting blown up in combat, getting my life saved, getting flown back to the United States, going through surgeries and rehab that took the better part of four years then medically retiring from the army after that. Uh, I took about a year off where I was now a retired uh, army captain drawing a pension and I spent that year applying to graduate schools and then I was able to go to business school out in California which was funded by the VA Mm -hmm. and that was considered to be part of my vocational rehabilitation. Uh, And then once I was done with that, that's kind of where personally I considered my transition from the military to be completely over. And I've just been living a a regular civilian business life ever since. And we are very, very grateful and happy that you were able to do that. Before we get to the initiative, I want to bring in Chris Purdy. Chris, tell our listeners a little bit more about what you all do, the Veterans for American Ideas program. So Veterans for American Ideas is a project of Human Rights First, and our goal is to mobilize veterans around the country to be human rights defenders in their communities. I think there are a lot of things that draw veterans to service after they've left uniform. And so our, our, our goal is to encourage those folks to you know, think about continuing their service by advancing the goals of human rights at home and abroad. So we have done initiatives, uh, pro-democracy work right now with this uh, election protection program that we have going on, the poll worker program. But we've also focused a lot in years past on those interpreters and translators who fought alongside American soldiers overseas and trying to get them back. So we have a wide range of, of uh, human rights work that we engage veterans on. And Chris, your organization is nonpartisan, correct? Yes, we are a non, nonpartisan 513C. Um, so we have no uh, electoral motivation in doing this work. Prior to this voting project, what other projects were you all involved in? We had done community service projects around the country. We have, uh, as I mentioned, done lobbying work mm-hmm. to encourage Congress to take up the, role, the, the issue of these interpreters and translators. And most recently, we had taken a look at the way uh, that the uh, police force had been militarized in the response of some of the uh, protests this summer. And so, you know, we had encouraged local governments to rethink their, um, how, how they envision public safety in that regard as well. And so how did this project come about in the idea? Well, first of all, we know the pandemic has made a lot of a shift and change the way we do a lot of just everyday typical activities. How did you all come up with this? Yeah, over the summer, we were approached after seeing how the post office was struggling to deliver ballots. Um, and we had seen the uh, kind of the meltdown that Georgia had experienced, Wisconsin had experienced, and some other states around this country. And um, we were given a challenge to uh, get veterans to step up and fill this critical election infrastructure. Um, you know, and so we decided that we would uh, shoot for the stars and see if we could get a thousand vets to uh, engage in their local communities as poll workers and get them trained and get them supplied and, and ready to go. Um, we are on almost we almost hit that mark. Uh, we, we're over 900. So, you know, 
the perfectionist in me wants me to <laughs> get that thousand, but 900 is good enough. Um, but uh, we did this in partnership with Power of the Polls, another nonpartisan organization. Um, and we worked with organizations around the country in all 50 states to uh, make sure that our folks were ready to go for tomorrow. Now, Captain Brzezinski, I don't know what your voting experience was like back in June. You can, <laughs> did, you, did you go to the polls or did you do via mail? What was that experience like for you? I'm pretty sure I voted uh, by mail. I voted by mail for, for the general. Uh, I got my mail ballot pretty quickly and, and turned it in right away. Um, so that was fairly seamless. I was able to go to the uh, Georgia Secretary of State, my voter page, mm-hmm. and double check that my ballot had been both received and accepted. And I've been checking it every week to make sure it doesn't, <laughs> uh, nothing bad happens to it. Um, so I would say that my vote by mail experience was totally seamless. All right. So let me ask you this. You're volunteering for tomorrow. Why do you want to do it? Yeah. Well, uh, I've never been a poll worker before. The reason I wanted to volunteer now was probably just because I didn't know it was so needed. I didn't know Mm -hmm. that our election infrastructure was so weak and so chronically understaffed and under-resourced. And so that combined with the pandemic, of course, um, and and just learning that, hey, we don't usually have enough poll workers. The people who do serve as poll workers tend to be older retirees and they are susceptible to the virus right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I started kind of hearing that message, I thought, well, I can pretty easily take a day off of work and I've worked long hours before and I'm pretty good at routine, simple tasks. So um, I thought it'd be a great opportunity to get involved. And, you know, frankly, after leaving the military, being in civilian life, I really enjoy any opportunity I have to participate in my community. And I'm assuming they've given you all the training that you need for tomorrow. Yeah, so my job's pretty simple. I'm going to be a line monitor. Uh, my training just consisted of, of watching a couple of brief videos that were sent to me via email. I will say in my experience, I, I'm a Fulton County resident, so I contacted the Fulton County Elections Office and said, hey, I'm willing to do any job you want. And I think they got flooded with offers Mm -hmm. uh, because I sort of fell through the cracks for a little while. I had to keep pinging them and say, hey, I really want to help out. What can I do? What can I do? And so I didn't get, you know, the 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 premier election poll worker position. Instead, I'm going to be outside, you know, handing out water and making sure people have whatever they need to endure the lines. Um, which is fine with me. But I think the silver lining there is I think they got a lot of volunteers, which is really wonderful. But that is an important role, too, because they do expect long lines. And the great thing is that we won't have 90 degree heat as the weather is predicted for tomorrow. But every little bit helps. Chris, let me come back to you. The goal is for a thousand and you're about at a little bit over 900. Is this only in Georgia or what other states are involved here? Yeah, so right now our numbers are looking around 930. Uh, we focused on states that either had uh, an election uh, issue with poll workers this year or were saying that they would. So that was Georgia, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan. Um, 74, 75% of our folks are in those four states. Um, we also have a large contingent in Texas um, and Virginia and California, um, but we have recruited people in every in every state uh, across at least one person in every state across the country. Um, and I will say there still is a need. So you know, while Dan's experience with Fulton County was challenging, um, I received a text message last night from a Fulton County poll worker saying that they there are still our openings, there are still our gaps in some polling locations. So you know, we uh, really see a need going up right up to election day, and we're prepared to work with boards of elections around the country to, to, to fill those gaps. Chris, I got to tell you, Michigan, Wisconsin, Iowa, Georgia, you all got the battleground states. <laughs> yeah, well, we didn't, you know, we, we didn't really focus on the fact that they were battleground states. Sure. We really didn't look at, you know, what states really struggled. And when we saw uh, Iowa in February or the, in the Democratic uh, presidential um uh, the caucus, mm-hmm. whether it was uh, Wisconsin um, and their long lines in the midst of the COVID pandemic um, and Georgia, our, our, you know, our June 9th primary really, really struggled. Um, and then the, the secretary of state of Michigan put out a call and said, look, if we don't have people, uh, a flood of people, we're going to really struggle on Election Day. And so there is an overlap of battlegrounds, that is sure. But our goal was not to you know, influence any uh, electoral outcome. Our, our goal is simply to make sure that our process is, is run effectively and efficiently and that people have trust in the process. And we really believe that veterans are best suited to do that. 
Captain Vershinsky, I know getting up early is not foreign to you, so you ready for tomorrow? Yeah, I have a 5 a.m. report, so I'll be getting up at, at 4.30, chugging some coffee, and then being prepared to, to be down at the polling site until polls close and I'm released. It'll be a long day. Why are you making sure that you have what you need? Why, yeah, why are you making sure uh, everybody else has what they need? Well, I've been told that we'll be provided with a lunch. I assume, I guess I'll bring a, a couple of water bottles of my own. And I just plan on staying busy, and time flies when you're busy, so I'm looking forward to it. Gentlemen, as we wrap up, it's been quite a year, besides being a presidential election year, obviously, but from the pandemic and everything else taking place in our nation. But I want to ask you both to reflect on the importance of voting as it relates to you, people exercising their right to vote, and also feeling, letting them know why you all, again, are involved in this. Chris, I'll start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a cliche that folks often throw around that, you know, voting is the most important thing that we can do in democracy, but it, it is true. We, uh, you know, you, you walk around the town, you talk to people in your daily lives and people are always, you know, saying what could be better, what, what can we do to, to make life a, a, a more suitable place? And the answer at the end of the day is getting out there and voting. Uh, it's ensuring that the people in power hear your voice and that they are responsive to that. Because if we don't vote, if we don't go out there and make our democracy function, then you know the American values that Dan and I stood up and and, and fought for, uh, you know, th those don't matter. And so we owe it to uh, ourselves, our community, uh, and future generations to exercise that vote. It's the most important thing that we can do. Captain, voting is the way that we achieve the change we want to see in our country. And so I'm looking forward to to serving again, even in this small way, but. I'm mostly looking forward to watching my fellow Americans get out, exercise their right to vote, and make sure that their voice is heard. Army Captain Dan Bershinsky, who is serving as a poll worker in Fulton County, and Chris Purdy, the project manager of the Veterans for American Ideas program at Human Rights First. Thank you both for taking the time and for the work that you all do. Captain, get some rest. Chris, thank you for the continued service you're doing as well. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.